Some really beautiful colors coming out of the vibraphone there. That was just a little taste of the piece, Broken Hashtag Kaleidoscope, by the composer Martin Quiroga Jr. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson, and today I'm speaking with Martin about his music and founding the Space City New Music Festival. So you grew up in Houston, in Texas. Uh, what was what was the music and art scene like growing up in Houston? Man, I don't really know. That wasn't really something that um, I really did as a child per se. You know, it was it was somewhat of a difficult childhood via circumstance. Not so much my parents, but a, a medical issue with my father that uh, made it difficult for my mother to be able to like take us to concerts, things like that. Normal childhood experiences. So it was more, um, you know, I would listen to uh, KUHF. They had the classical radio station. I would, yeah, I would listen to the radio station. And then outside of that, I was mainly just like in, in marching band and nothing, nothing too eccentric per se. I, I it was, it was a very, um, ba- no, I don't want to say basic, but it wasn't as like in depth as perhaps uh, as it could have been. But, you know, I don't, I don't blame anyone for that. If anything, it made uh exposure to music at a later age and I mean much later like I was like 22 23 when I like heard Debussy for example so that's it it sounds like well how do you go that long without listening to it but um you know if you're not exposed to it how are you supposed to know about it well but you you started percussion in band right marching band yeah well I I mean uh here in Texas uh you know I started in sixth grade so that was probably like 1998 around there. Um, and then, you know, you do high school marching band. And yeah, and to give you an idea, like I remember when we, the year we played a Copeland inspired marching band show, I remember calling it Copland until we were, we were finally corrected like two weeks later. It's like, hey, hey dummy, like, no. <laughs> when did you know you were gonna pursue percussion or was it composing that came first? You're like, this is what I wanna, I wanna do. Well, I wanted to be a lawyer, actually. Um, (laughs) That was like when I, uh, I I wasn't the most um, academic focused student in in high school. And so uh, after my first semester at San Jacinto College, my GPA was like a 1.97. It was like absolutely in the dumps. Um, And so I did what any reasonable aspiring lawyer did. I switched to music. And that actually kind of did turn me around, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, I, by the time I left San Jacinto College, I worked really hard and uh, I ended up leaving with a 2.97, which, I mean, you know, to come back from such a abysmal GPA uh, was quite the feat, at least for myself. And in that time, uh, it, was, it was so much fun. Uh, but yeah, and so when I transferred to the University of Houston through three years after San Jacinto College, so this is around 2008, I did percussion for a semester at that level and realized that I didn't want to do music education through the traditional route. And so I decided I was going to get my Bachelor of Arts instead. And since I was going to have to be there anyways for about two or three years, I kind of explored a little bit. That's kind of when, you know, I touched on an accounting minor, um, Spanish minor, et cetera. Um, And then uh, at the end of the theory three semester, Dr. Rob Smith walked into our theory class and said, if anyone's interested, come try it out. And so I brought in just, you know, some random piece of music that I wrote. And next thing I know, the next semester, I'm I'm writing music. And the semester after that, uh, you know, I'm getting pieces played. And so just snowballed to, to, you know, composing on my own, going to Oregon, and the journey is real. Let's take a little pause and listen to some music. I want to ask you about um, Hypnagogic Harmonium, which is a piano trio that you wrote, which means that I need to get it under my fingers and program this soon. First off, where does the name Hypnagogic Harmonium come from? The title comes from a, uh, so when you're asleep and uh, like your leg starts kicking or twitching, um, if I remember correctly, that's kind of like a hypno- hypnagogic um, motion. And so I kind of wanted to get a piece that kind of had like this, this kick, this, this motion. Um, and, and really the whole piece is built off of that. 
the piano seems to function uh, in in a lot of ways in that role. Yeah, and absolutely. Because the the violin and the clarinet are often in, in unison, and that, that's such a cool color. Like you know, kudos to to your performers for lining it up so precisely. No, absolutely, and in in it's a very simple trick. They just move them parallel six in the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. You know, thank, thank goodness I had wonderful performers because they kept it not only in tune, but like you said, they were very precise with their motion and really shows the caliber of the musician to, to move in parallel six and keep that wonderful color the entire time. And so, I mean, when you hear it, the, very, the opening chord, I mean, you, you, it's supposed to kind of lull you to sleep, right? Because at some point we gotta, we gotta have our, you gotta be asleep for your leg to twitch that way. And so it, it's, it's not a lullaby, but for sure it's kind of like this motion of drifting off into, in, into a headspace that perhaps doesn't prepare you for what, what's to come. The instrumentation came about um, because it was difficult to find a harp player. It was essentially supposed to be kind of the Debussy, the standard Debussy trio, flute, viola, and harp. Um, but, but we, for logistics reason, we replaced the harp with piano, and and um, I don't regret that decision whatsoever. Yeah, I mean the the piano is, I mean the percussive aspect. The harp is percussive, but the you know the percussive aspect of that piano really gives it a kick. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know even with that piece, um, there are just a handful of extended techniques. It, it really is a lot of. A lot of harmony, a lot of um, moving lines. It's it's not so much. And you know, when I do use the advanced techniques, they are they're in the most literal sense for color, for effect. And the piece doesn't rely on them per se. Outside of that.
So fast forward to you going to Oregon, you, you applied to Oregon to study music composition. Uh, what was your experience at, at Oregon like? Uh, you know, it was really uh, eye-opening, that's for sure. You know, I went to Oregon to study theory. That was my, my main thing. You know, the, the full year of fugues was, um, in a sense, in my own compositions, I, I knew that theory was my weak point not to boast, um, but I knew that like, you know, my sense of rhythm was there. That wasn't an issue. Um, color and, and even somewhat of a defined aesthetic, it was all kind of there. Like I knew exactly what I wanted for the most part. You know, I'd be lying if I said I knew exactly what I wanted every time. Through my background as a percussionist, but I, theory was my weak point. Harmony was my weak point for sure. And so uh, when I got to Oregon, the, the first thing that shocked me was they told me it was a three-year degree. Um, and so I said no, uh, because at this point I'm 27 um, or 28, one of the two numbers. Um, and uh, I didn't want to be in grad school for three years. I, I mean, everybody does it for two. Um, and so I, I was, if not the first one of the first to do it in two years. And so uh, I worked religiously. I mean, I, I, I learned that I had to learn how to play piano. And so I was practicing piano every morning for the first year for one to two hours, rain or shine, predominantly rain in Oregon. <laughs> um, that was really eye-opening in like how much work it really takes to, to just essentially complete a graduate degree. And then, you know, following the, the, the ringleader, the master of the ceremonies, uh, you know, Dr. Robert Keir, uh, following that guy around for, for a year was just impressive to see that type of work ethic to, to accomplish the things essentially that you want to accomplish. It wasn't so much a matter of like money or time or energy. It's just drive. Like if you want it, go do it. Seeing that was essentially seeing like a very mature version of myself. But being surrounded by people who were driven to accomplish whatever they could, however they could, was really, really one of the greatest points of it. And then, of course, you know, the one year of fugues, that was so much fun. So, yeah, you're, I, know, I know something about you that is you're really uh, interested in fugal techniques and fugues and, you know, the history of fugues and all many people who have, have looked at fugues. Um, what is it about what is it about the fugue that you're drawn to? You can't hide. If, if, if your harmony is weak, your fugue is weak. If your melody is weak, your fugue is weak. I mean, it, it, just like with the sonata, like with the fugue, as we studied it through the course of a year, one of the main things that I was learning is that, yes, you are bound by certain rules, but that doesn't mean that the rules have to define the music. And you, know, and you see it throughout the history from Bach all the way to Messian. Um, you know, that final fugue was just absolutely, I don't want to say ridiculous, but it was very obscure. I mean, it was literally like, you know, the exposition, Messian, the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, but, it, but even, even he followed the rules to a certain extent. And so learning them and understanding them and then using those techniques and then uh, either breaking them or using them was was surprisingly freeing. Um, and, you know, I, I get to explore the one thing that at, at the time, and I still work on it, um, the one thing that I've always been uh, maybe a little self-conscious about is, is harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so much of a fugue comes down to having a really good subject and then having a really good plan of how you can develop it, or at least having um, the right muscles to flex when developing it, I guess. Absolutely. And just like the old joke, you know, knowing when to shut up mm -hmm. when it comes to, to, you know, if a few goes a solo, essentially, which it can be, uh, knowing when to stop or, or what moments to trick the listener, you know, oh, false recap. Oh, you know, um, double fugue out of nowhere. Then you, you can do it like Mozart, just introduce random subjects and then take them away and be like, haha, you know, gotcha. And I love breaking rules. You know, I, I tell all my students I'm constantly in trouble. And um, that, that doesn't change um, either in, in my professional or personal life. I'm, I'm always in trouble because I like breaking the rules. And what's nice about a fugue is when you break a rule, the listener who is, who is uh, 
uh, acquainted or comfortable with the set rules. It's just like, ah, uh, like, cool. Like, whoa, wasn't expecting that one. I can't express how much I just love a good fugue. So, so for Fugue and Ray, Fugue and Ray was written for Space City New Music Festival 2019. And that piece was performed at the Baptist Church. What kind of fugue is it? It really is just your standard fugue. Four voices in the beginning, uh, after the, when I introduce the fourth voice in the exposition, um, I break the rule and double the note value to, to extend it. And, you know, I did that on purpose because um, I really wanted to draw out the exposition. Again, you know, drama has been something that, um, I, I love composing drama and music. I think that even a fugue can be dramatic if you allow it to be. And so that piece in particular, um, breaking the rule of the exposition and then draw, uh, going further with it in the development is really something I love doing. And it's interesting that if you listen to it and listen to hypnagogic harmonium, you can hear similarities in, in my aesthetic choices throughout. Uh, the only thing is that in, in, in the fugue, um, again, I couldn't hide in the harmonies. So it had to be clear, it had to be very clean. You know, so I really love honoring the past. Um, as much as I love fighting against it, um, there is something really wonderful about reflecting on it, using, techniques such as form, um, cadences, which, which are somewhat overlooked um, in my experience. And using those moments in, in a fugue is really enjoyable. And then, you know, I wrote, I wrote for an organ. You know, how much more reflective of the past can I be writing a fugue for an organ? Oh my goodness. You know, a lot of, a lot of composers today are, are doing a lot a lot with live electronics, a lot with live electronic processing, Max MSP. But then there are composers who are finding inspiration everywhere. There are composers finding inspiration in the past and how it can it can pertain to their, their world today. I mean, what is it about evoking the past that inspires you? I think the main thing is that it would be disingenuous for me to ignore the past. The history of music is so rich and diverse, so many rules set, so many rules broken. You know, you, you go even further back in music theory, you know, parallel force and fits were fine up to a certain point. Um, and, and so that's really the thing is that I just love the fact that even in, since the past up until now, we have broken all the rules and we'll continue to do so. And so really the next step for me is finding new ways to, to break the rules the same way everyone else is. And then adding my own flair, the drama. I live my life drama free, but my music would tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah, man.
aside from working with Rob Cure, I also got to work with David Crumb, who I think in like our first one or two lessons mentioned to me how weak my harmony was, but he was honest. And so it was nice to hear after, you know, 10, 20, almost 30 weeks of hard work. It was like, hey, like you did it. You, you thought it through and it makes sense and it's very clear. And that was the piece I wrote for James Shields, uh, uh, beach scene with a strike through through it, um, the title and an homage to Mark Rothko's really fun painting if you've never seen it. Um, it it's, it's where he's still painting people or things, um, but it's just very Rothko-esque and that it's, you know, the colors swirl into each other and it's this kind of effervescent, foggy, cloudy-like texture. Beach scene. So yeah, this, this piece was inspired by um, some of Rothko's er earlier paintings before the, the abstract color wall pieces. And, and hey, Rothko Chapel, right, right there in Houston. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, so I, I would say that for sure with composition, especially when I was in Oregon, because you know, as I was working on my harmony, I also was, took it as a chance to still explore new ideas. I mean, you can always do that as a composer, don't get me wrong. But at a certain point, you do kind of have to draw a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. And so with Beach scene, at the time, I think I was listening to, I most definitely was listening to a lot of Takemitsu. And so I kind of wanted to, because his harmony is so unique, so eclectic and so beautiful, of course, so let's not leave out the the most important part. Drawing upon my love for Takemitsu's music, plus uh, Rothko Chapel is, is situated here in Houston, Texas. It's, it's right next to the Menil, which is a giant art collection, private art collection that's open to the public. With those two elements combined, I, I, in a lot of ways, I, the piece is an homage to both uh, Mark Rothko and Toru Takemitsu. You can hear it in the opening statement that you know it is a a piece that is supposed to be somewhat effervescent and and foggy, just just like the the paintings of Rothko, but smooth. Like you know, when you look at a Rothko painting, it, there's nothing jarring about it. I mean, sure, the grandeur of it is jarring, but when you're up close, I mean, each brushstroke just looks just so wonderful. I mean, it's just they they exist in their own world, and so trying to capture that using similar aesthetical decisions such as like Takemitsu statements was really the way to go with that piece. And I got to write it for James Shields, who's an absolute boss.
I want to ask about Space City New Music Festival a little bit next. Um, so you, you're a founding member of Space City New Music Festival, and you are also the festival director. Space City Percussion, Space City Performing Arts have been around for a while. How did you get involved in this new music festival? Yeah, so the festival actually came about from, from a different grand idea. So when I left Oregon, I moved back to Houston, uh, penniless. I had $70 to my name when I moved back, which was uh, daunting to say the least. And so, uh, you know, when I got back, I immediately started going back to work and uh, teaching marching bands just to kind of make money. It's not something I really do anymore. And so I went to a Space City Performing Arts concert and they were playing the music of Brian Eno. I remember that distinctly. At the end of the concert, I uh, walked up to uh, Jacob and Zag Gutierrez, who are kind of like the, the the face of Space City Performing Arts. And they curated the concert, of course. And I walked up to them and I was like, hey guys, great job. You know, it's a great concert. And they were like, yeah, we should uh, commission you at some point. And I was like, oh, that's a really great idea. I was like, you know, I have a couple of ideas. I'd love to walk them by you. And they're like, well, sure. What do you think? And I was like, how about a ballet? Um, because I just moved back from Oregon. And, you know, after after seeing what was possible, I knew that you shoot for the stars. And they laughed and they were like, well, you know, that's a little little above and beyond what we what we normally do. I was like, well, how about a new music festival then? I'll, I'll, I'll dramatize it and say that they raise their eyebrows and they're like, ooh, interesting. And so, you know, they we kept in touch and in a few days we started a uh, Google Doc which just, they just had a couple of basic questions like, how do you see this festival coming about? And um, six weeks later, uh, it was like a 40 page document and the festival was announced. That's a, it sounds like a daunting task to be able to start a new music festival, but you, you had a lot of experience that you received in at UO and other places, right? Just like gathering, you know, how, how concerts, how festivals should be run, right? The craziest part about all of that is that it has nothing really to do with curating the concerts in as so much as it is just contemplating how much time it takes to curate a concert. So, for example, if you want to have a concert of eight pieces, that, mean, that means that these eight pieces need to be rehearsed twice for about an hour each. Um, so for one concert, you need about 16 hours of rehearsal time. With that concept, you know, it was really actually not so difficult because when we were working with the venue, they were just like, what are you, what are you proposing here? Like, we need to see a schedule. And in about two or three hours, I created the entire festival schedule that we ended up using. Because it's just logistics. I mean, and, and if you've ever taught band either as like a director or even as, a, as an assistant or a technician such as myself, um, the majority of the work is, is in, in the logistics. The rehearsal process is probably the easiest part. So when, when thinking about logistics, because I think there's, there's, there's that, but there's also like, we want to have a guest composer, we want to have guest performers, we want to have, you know, a call for scores, all these things, like taking, taking all that into account too. I don't know, what, how did those, those ideas come? Yeah, well, you know, and that, that's kind of the crazy part is that uh, Jacob and Zach trusted me to make the smart decisions. Um, and, and it wasn't just me either. Like, you know, I had to run it by them. It has to go through a board. So uh, all the decisions that I made were essentially fact-checked. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so the, first, the first festival was 2018. Walk me through, through 2018. Like, what, what were you able to do for the festival? What, what, what was the overall layout? Like, who came and, and what events did you have and what spaces? The festival was held at the Midtown Arts Theater Center, Houston, also known as The Match, which is a much easier name to say. And so uh, we held it at The Match in box three, if I remember correctly, it has four um, performing boxes. It, it's more of kind of like a, a musical slash drama slash dance type of venue, more than it is a music venue to a certain extent. Um, at least for, you know, contemporary music, but it worked really well for us. And it was great. I remember that, you know, 
we got to the festival ran from Monday to Sunday. And so Sunday night we got to move in um, and you know, we picked up our keys and Monday morning when they started unloading the truck, um, I remember walking up to the, the loading bay and Jacob and Zach were there unloading with the, just these gigantic grins on their faces. Mine as well. I mean, we literally have just started the still to this day, I think the only new music festival in Texas. Mm. Oh man, it was, it was so much fun. You know, 14, 16 hour days. One of them turned into like 20, 20 plus constant excitement, constant movement. Even though we essentially utilized the main stage for all the rehearsals, people were coming in and out, you know, we had to open the doors, we had to print music. Um, coordinating with people, uh, training people, because we are, for example, uh, at the time, our stage manager had never done any stage managing. Um, but, you know, so there I was training him while at the same time trying to run lights, at the same time sending emails to our daily update, um, just to keep everyone informed, like, hey, don't forget tomorrow, doors open, be sure you wear your name tags. And then the occasional, um, you know, fire hey you know can we do this it's like no just little things like that that just constantly kept me busy throughout the day and then of course you know at the end of the night it's a festival i gotta go hang out with the composers and the performers to, and so when we would go to the to the uh local watering holes um, many many much water was had on my part but it was it was really fun people from we had composers from mexico from from Germany, of course, a bunch of American composers, uh, but not as many as you might think. Um, I would say about a quarter to a third of the festival was international with a variety of male and female composers. So it absolutely was nice to have some diversity and some inclusion in it in the first year alone. What were some of the things that you've done for the composers and for some things that like specific events were things that you've wanted to to give opportunities you've wanted to give each uh performing artist and each guest composer and each guest ensemble each gave lectures to the composers themselves at the time we kept those closed to the public because logistically it would be considered a performance and so we would have to pay extra fees on top of that um, because you have to pay for uh, performance insurance so something as simple as making a lecture free and open to the public at that facility, which isn't, you know, not owned by us, nor was it backed by any institution, we essentially came down to money. And so that, that is the little downside of working with perhaps not a university or uh, owning or having a special relationship with the facility. But that's just something, again, that has to go down to logistics. You can imagine how disastrous it would be to open all these lectures to the public Four lectures each, you know, the insurance is about 250 bucks. So we'd be about a thousand dollars in the hole just to hopefully have people walk in the door. Yeah. This is um something that I don't think we've talked about very much, but like the the opportunity that this gives all these these composers, you know, to network. Where where just tell me a little bit about the the composers who have participated in in the festival and all the years they've run and and you know what their backgrounds tend to be. Uh, they seem pretty diverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, both 2018 and 2019 had some very di diverse backgrounds. Um, people who were not, um, say, full-time musicians, people who were, who were nurses, who um, still composed music, and one of their music performed at the, at the music festival. Um, in 2019, we had a, a student who had just graduated from high school this was his first major festival. Um, and, and I remember distinctly, he was there all day, every day, from, from the first rehearsal to the, to the last event. He stayed there all day, absorbed it like a sponge. The, the composers themselves, you know, composers are kind of interesting characters. They'll, they find who they want to network with. It, it, you can't really force it on them. But really, it's the spirit of a festival, right? I mean, everybody becomes friendly. Um, because all the rehearsals are open to the festival members, you would suddenly find yourself at your rehearsal with the ensemble, um, your conductor, if you had one, yourself. And then in the, in the audience would be two or three composers who 
are there either to learn something or to support you. It was, it was, it was a great opportunity for themselves to, to, to learn or to network however they wanted to. That piece is called Una Mariposita Tremenda, performed by Linda Jenkins. We're going to take a small step backwards chronologically just to talk a little bit more about the Oregon Composers Forum. The um, Oregon Composers Forum is just a weird little incubation chamber. It's like, look, we've got new music ensembles. We've got six of them. They're going to happen. Who's going to, you know, we've got like Taihei, we've got Sonostumum, we've got, you know, all these ensembles in there. And, it really encourages everyone in the composition studio to really take it upon themselves to organize and to advocate for their own music. And 
advocate for like the ensemble, which is pretty cool. You you were involved in those like a lot. Can you talk to me about just Oregon Composers Forum a little bit? You could say that would be almost the the, the genesis of the festival to a certain extent. The the ability to to at that time watch Robert Keir heard this this group of you know of composers to to like you said take it upon themselves to to be advocates of their own music while being advocates of the of the music of their colleagues as well um, to become stewards of of music as a whole and and composers form wasn't what people think most composers form are like we didn't we didn't have guest lecturers we didn't have uh, quote unquote show and tell it was literally just logistics organizing making sure that the things that need to be happen are happening that the check marks are being checked and that the you know the t's are are dotted and the i's are crossed what do you have coming up right now what are you what are you working on at the end of spring semester of 2021 uh, mr thomas macias at creekside intermediate mentioned to me that he wanted to commission a piece from me for the Creekside Brass Choir, which is a, a brass choir composed of seventh and eighth graders. And he was applying to um, have the students perform at the Texas Music Educators Association Conference, TMEA, one of the biggest music education conferences in the nation. And so he wanted his students to perform there and, and he has, uh, it is now official. So uh, it has been approved, they've been accepted and they will be performing there. And so, when he asked me my commission rate, you know, I, I told him, I told him the number, which I want to announce here. Um, and then I told him, I was like, hey, you know, there's grants available to at least, you know, that we don't have to pay all of it. You can pay part of it. Or if the grant covers all of it, that would be great. And so we kind of searched around for some grants and uh, he found an in-house grant, education grant uh, for at uh, with Clear Creek Independent School District, CCISD we thought bigger in scope since we were applying for it, we might as well, you know, get what we can out of it. And so it went from just commissioning this one piece for the brass choir to composing a piece for brass choir, composing a piece for the Creekside Intermediate Band, the, the, the top ensemble. I can't remember the name of it right now. Another piece for the top ensemble at Victory Lakes Intermediate, which is, you know, within the school district, they're all kind of together. And then uh, a piece for the top ensemble at Clear Springs High School. And so on top of all of that, the grant also said that um, I would teach three students, one from each school nominated by each director um, to take essentially free composition lessons with me. Um, and so, you know, this one idea turned into this big project that focused on a micro level, the independent, the individual student to a macro level, which is essentially pieces written for this, the entire body of students. And then of course it's a community event because these concerts are, parents come to these concerts and they bring their friends and family. And so, um, you know, this one small idea turned into this community project that is currently in process. I, I, I've already finished the brass choir piece. I am composing away at the, at the Creekside Intermediate one. And then, you know, I got deadlines coming up to finish the other two in the near future. And I'm working with my two of the three students right now. So it's, it's going along. It's, it's super fun. I'm, I'm really, really excited to not only compose for these programs, but they're so personal. I work at these schools. I know these students. I know these directors. I've worked in CCISD for getting close to a decade, if not already. The students that I have are already so passionate about composing, you know. They don't know what exactly they want to do in life, but right now they know that they love music and they want to explore it further. And so I'm, I'm happy to be part of that journey. A huge thank you to Martin Quiroga Jr. for joining me today. You can find a lot more of Martin's music online. I highly suggest you check it out. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org.